Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast for people who understand that history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time. We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. I'm taking you time traveling again. Just a short train or boat ride from the heart of London is one of England's most famous pleasure palaces, Hampton Court Palace. From the heyday of Henry VIII to Shakespeare's performances in the Great Hall, and from plans for the King James Bible to huge renovations under William and Mary, Hampton Court Palace has been at the heart of the British monarchy. In fact, during the Hanoverian reigns, it was the site of a queen fleeing while in active labor and the accusation of a baby being smuggled into the palace in a warming pan. Since Queen Victoria opened Hampton Court to the public, people have flocked to see the palace, the gardens, the maze, and the wonders of a world gone by. Let me begin by telling you a little bit about Historic Royal Palaces, the organization that cares for Hampton Court Palace, the Tower of London, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, and Hillsborough Castle and Gardens in Northern Ireland. Historic Royal Palaces manage all of the conservation needs of these treasures, doing necessary conservation and renovation work and making them available for research and enjoyment. With the pandemic, these sites have been hit hard as visitors have been banned or severely limited. Curator talks from Historic Royal Palaces have provided wonderful opportunities for us to keep up with our favorite locations and keep learning, but it's not enough. So I am personally taking this opportunity to invite you to become a member of Historic Royal Palaces. If you're an American, like I am, there's an American Friends program. I love being an American member of Historic Royal Palaces. I feel supportive when I'm not able to visit. And when I do visit, I'm able to skip long lines and go over and over and over. And then there's the discount at the gift shop. So, of course, the more you buy, the more you save. Please, please consider becoming a member. Visit www.hrp.org.uk. I'll put links in the show notes. Okay, now let's go to Hampton Court Palace. For today, we'll be looking at the Tudor Treats. Quick note, in addition to my own experiences, I've used the Historic Royal Palace's website, the HRP blog, Curator Talks, and the official Hampton Court Illustrated History by Lucy Worsley and David Souden. Thomas Wolsey. Which court? The King's Court or Hampton Court? Thomas Wolsey was an amazing character who managed for a period of time to run Henry VIII's government and rise to high offices in the church as well. While he was building his reputation, he built up his residences. 
He held rights to York Place as Archbishop of York, but he wanted his own private residence. He probably knew Giles Dobney, owner of Hampton Court, and acquired the property from his son in 1514. Wolsey started renovations immediately with the goal of creating an appropriate place for entertaining both religious and political figures that could help advance his career. Wolsey expanded and renovated Hampton Court from 1514 to 1528. He built garter robes and great chimneys. He created the Great Gatehouse, which continues to serve as the entry to the base court. He added a long gallery for exercise and for viewing the gardens. Seeking to create a feel of antiquity, he had Giovanni di Maiano make eight busts representing the heads of Roman emperors. Later renovations included improving chambers so they would be worthy of royal visitors. A block of rooms were created in the clock court. The top floor apartments were the most spectacular, offering the visitor views of the court and the surrounding countryside. Woolsey also created a luxurious suite for himself. He even included fish ponds to provide himself with fresh fish. Visitors to Hampton Court were also treated to a grand chapel, and that included a great processional route. Visitors could follow Cardinal Wolsey as he processed to hear Mass on the feast days. Wolsey was committed to using the best materials available. He had an enormous stained glass window in the chapel, the bricks were of the highest quality, and everything was designed to promote the grandeur of the owner. The pièce de résistance were the tapestries, which he had gathered since the 1520s. Woolsey ultimately accumulated 600 tapestries for the most important rooms at Hampton Court. Woolsey's extravagance certainly caught the eyes of his visitors and of his king. John Skelton, a well-known poet and former tutor of Henry VIII, wrote a satirical poem calling Woolsey's wealth and influence into sharp focus. Why come you not to court? To which court? To the king's court or to Hampton Court? Nay, to the king's court. The king's court should have the excellence, but Hampton Court hath the preeminence. In my opinion, this was the worst thing for someone like Henry VIII to hear. It was one thing for him to have Wolsey basically run the country while the king could pursue his own interests and pleasures. But it was quite another thing for people to joke about Wolsey having preeminence. That, combined with Wolsey's inability to get Henry's annulment from Catherine of Aragon, plus the whispers that Wolsey was conspiring with the Pope, turned Henry against his longtime devoted servant. Wolsey maintained the whole point of Hampton Court was to glorify his king. The best apartments were for Henry himself. Henry always acted as if the palace were his own when he visited. But as Wolsey proved unable to meet the king's wishes, he found Henry wanted to take his sense of ownership even further. In September 1528, Wolsey received a letter telling him to leave Hampton Court. The king was about to turn Hampton Court into his own pleasure palace. Henry's rebuilding plan. Henry's building program at Hampton Court Palace began in January 1529. He hadn't been all that interested in building earlier in his reign, but he took on this new interest with a passion. He built glamorous apartments for Anne Boleyn and for Jane Seymour. 
although neither woman actually lived long enough to use and enjoy them. He built offices for his kitchen staff, as well as enormous kitchens to feed his court and privy kitchens for himself. The structure of the palace reflects the path to the king. A new processional staircase was designed to provide access from the gatehouse to the great hall and the rooms beyond toward the king's lodgings. A new stone vault ceiling demonstrates the king's devotion to Anne Boleyn. The initials H and A entwined together are found in the ceiling. The stones we see now are a 19th century recreation but it's easy to imagine how it felt for Anne to see her initials as she looked up. Now you can head up the stairs to the Great Hall, looking for Anne Boleyn's initials and her falcon badge. This is an extraordinary Great Hall, which Henry rebuilt in 1532. Look up, and you'll see an unbelievable hammer bean ceiling designed to echo the roof at Westminster Hall and symbolize royalty. The roof is decorated with carved and painted head among the eaves, looking down at the hall as if they are listening in or eavesdropping. The batches of Henry VIII also decorate the great hall ceiling. And every once in a while, you'll also spot the badge of Anne Boleyn, missed when Henry tried to erase evidence of Anne Boleyn from his life and from Hampton Court. The great hall was often bursting with visitors. It was also used to feed the enormous number of people at court. They dined in two shifts along long tables. Great Hall was also used for gatherings and performances. In later years, Shakespeare staged plays in the Great Hall. Beyond the Great Hall is the Great Watching Chamber. Admittance to this was carefully guarded and limited to senior members of the court. They ate here as well as gathering and conducting court business. This was the place where petitioners watched for the king, hoping to catch his attention and be able to have a moment of royal conversation. What might you do to catch the king's eye? Visitors of even greater rank passed through to the royal chambers beyond. The king had a series of rooms where he met with his council, ate in privacy, and spent time with his favorites. To access these most important rooms, visitors had to negotiate the yeoman of the guard. The guard in the great watching chamber were tasked with controlling who was able to enter Henry's private rooms. Anne Boleyn is not the only of Henry's wives to have left us glimpses into life at Hampton Court. Jane Seymour's arms and badges are seen in roundels and in stone fragments. Jane's badge is a phoenix, a bird who sacrifices itself to give birth to another. This was the perfect symbol for Jane, who came with Henry to Hampton Court in the summer of 1537 during the final months of her pregnancy. Henry, of course, was determined the child would be a son, and he ordered a new suite of apartments to house his young prince. Jane went into confinement at Hampton Court in preparation for the birth. After a very difficult delivery, Edward was born 12th of October, 1537, The entire country rejoiced at the birth of a prince. An elaborate christening followed on the 15th of October in the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court. Then, just a few days after the birth, Jane became deathly ill. There are different descriptions of her death, including mentions of her being, quote, mishandled. Whatever the cause, Jane Seymour died on the 24th of October. She was buried on the 12th of November at Windsor Castle, 
Although there is a legend, her heart is buried in the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court. You can visit the chapel, the site of Edward's wonderful coronation, Henry's beloved son and heir. Catherine Howard also left some of her story at Hampton Court. As the new fifth wife of Henry VIII, for those of you keeping count, she sat with Henry in the Chapel Royal in July of 1540. After a successful progress around the country, the royal couple returned to Hampton Court, where Henry gave public thanks for his beloved wife. But little more than a year later, while at Hampton Court, evidence came to light that Catherine had a more active past than the king had believed. In fact, the king had created his own version of Catherine Howard that stoked his ego, and that was a version of a young girl who was his alone. Devastated by the truth of her past and her possible relationship with Thomas Culpepper, the king turned against her. The ghost of Catherine Howard is said to haunt Hampton Court, particularly the haunted gallery, where she is said to have run crying in an attempt to beg Henry for mercy. There is some question whether this would have been possible in that space, but people still claim to have seen and heard the teenage queen. Might you get a glimpse of her? Sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, also left her mark on Hampton Court Palace. After Catherine Howard, the king gave up wife hunting for just a bit. Eventually, he got lonely. His choice was Catherine Parr, a twice-widowed woman who was intelligent, lively, attractive, and kind. They were married at Hampton Court Palace. Catherine was a particularly good stepmother. She'd been an excellent support for her second husband, Lord Latimer's children, and she was the same for the king's. One of my favorite spots at Hampton Court is the gallery where the portrait hangs of the king's family. This painting was created around the same time that Henry brought his two daughters back into the succession. The portrait shows the family, including Mary and Elizabeth, but with an important distinction. Instead of Catherine Parr, who was married to Henry VIII at the time, sitting next to the king is Jane Seymour. Well, she is the mother of Prince Edward. Even so, Catherine Parr's efforts to bring the king's daughters back to court were important, and she spent the Christmas of fourteen of fifteen forty six to forty seven together with them as the king was ill and away from court. Now we meet not only Henry and his wives at Hampton Court, but also his children. Edward the Sixth. Edward's association with Hampton Court Palace started with his birth in the newly renovated Queen's apartments and his great christening in October of fifteen thirty seven. In anticipation for the child's birth, and of course, Henry was sure it would be a son, Henry engaged builders to create a whole new suite of rooms for his new child. Records show that the king was so eager that the builders hurry up and finish before the baby was born that he paid extra and provided candles so they could work through the night. Historic Royal Palaces tells us that these sumptuous apartments were located in the north range of Chapel Court. The layout was similar to the king's own suite of apartments. In the Grand Presence Chamber, the young prince's glamorous cradle was located. Any visitor who managed to make their way through the various checks and guards along the way might get to glimpse the young prince in his cradle. Of course, the room was well guarded, and only those completely trusted by the king were allowed anywhere near his precious son. 
Henry had been on the throne for nearly 30 years by the time Edward was born. He realized the young prince's health must be protected at all costs. He ordered that a wash house with running water be part of the prince's household and that the walls, floors, and ceilings be cleaned at least once every day. Servants who were in the presence of the young prince were monitored carefully, and anyone who became ill was dismissed immediately. One special group of servants for Prince Edwards were his rockers, the women who rocked his cradle and comforted the prince. Prince Edward had a day nursery where he spent most of his days with his rockers and other caregivers. Mary I. Mary I treated Hampton Court as a bit of a pleasure palace after her wedding. She and Philip of Spain were married in Winchester in 1554 and spent their honeymoon at Hampton Court. The next year, Mary chose Hampton Court Palace as the spot for the birth of her first child. She had considered Windsor Castle, which was a more secure location. However, Hampton Court was larger and offered more accommodations for all the members of her court. Once the Queen went into confinement, protocol dictated that she and her court remain until the child was born. However, as weeks turned into months, no child arrived. The nature of Tudor living meant that the court had to keep moving because after a period of time, the palace would be so overcome with filth, it would be uninhabitable. Eventually, Mary came out of confinement, devastated that she had not really been pregnant, and the court moved on. It would be the first of two phantom pregnancies Mary would suffer. So the notion of Hampton Court as a pleasure palace faded by the time of her death in 1558. Elizabeth I. Let's go back to that Family of Henry VIII portrait that hangs in the gallery. It's by an unknown artist and thought to have been painted around 1545. By that time, Henry had returned both daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, to the succession, and they're in the portrait. But my favorite thing is the portrait of young Elizabeth. I'm fascinated by Elizabeth's memory of and thoughts about her mother, Anne Boleyn. In this portrait, Elizabeth appears to be wearing an A necklace that likely belonged to her mother. I've spoken to guides at Hampton Court about it, as well as my favorite all-time historian, all-time favorite historian, Professor Susanna Lipscomb, And most people agree there's a very good chance Elizabeth is wearing her mother's necklace. Back when Mary I was awaiting the birth of her child, as she thought, Elizabeth was summoned to Hampton Court. Some people think that Mary wanted to have Elizabeth right there to see the birth of the baby that would replace Elizabeth as heir to the throne. Later, Elizabeth caught smallpox at Hampton Court Palace. Although she and her court visited frequently, it may not have been her favorite palace. Last year, I was able to see the Bacton altar cloth display at Hampton Court. This gorgeous piece of embellished silk fabric is thought to be part of a dress worn by Elizabeth I in the rainbow portrait. It seems that the dress or a part of it was sent to the village of Bacton in memory of Blanche Perry, one of Elizabeth's longest serving ladies in waiting. The cloth was kept safe for hundreds of years as an altar cloth and just recently identified as a rare surviving piece of 16th century clothing. What an amazing reminder that bits of the past might still be among us, hiding in unexpected places, waiting to teach us new things.
There's even more to see at Hampton Court. The wonderful Tudor kitchens, the King's Wine Cellar, the maze, all the gardens, the Tudor tennis court, and of course, the other part of the palace featuring William and Mary and the Georgians. It's as much of a pleasure palace for visitors now as it was in the days of Henry VIII. So as soon as we can all travel again, let's meet up at Hampton Court. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.